Part Two, Chapter Thirty Four, of Johnny Reb and Billy Yank, by Alexander Hunter. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Barry Eads. Chapter Thirty Four, The Debatable Land. Four miles from Orange Courthouse was the residence of Major John H. Lee, whose plantation, Litchfield, was well known to all the officers of Pickett's division, for the Major was exceedingly hospitable. I stayed under his roof several days, and traded my captured mule, and another which I owned, for a very fine three-year-old blooded mare. She proved a number one mount. I started back to Farquhar on another scout stopping en route at my right-hearted wrong-headed cousins and soon after i was leisurely journeying through mosby's confederacy or the debatable land the broad county of farquhar and a portion of prince william and culpepper for the last two years of the war had been the great debatable land of the two armies in all that the name implied like that section of scotland during the revolution that was alternately harried by the highlanders and sacked by the lowlanders or, like the Low Countries in the Bloody War of the League, so this region was the theatre of the hostilities. They had suffered more from the effects of the conflict than any other counties in any states of the Confederacy. In the upper county, from the Piedmont section near the Blue Ridge Mountains, to the marshy lowlands lying near the Orange and Alexandria Railroad, and on the Rappahannock River, there was not a panel of fencing left and there was not a single house in that vast boundary which had not been visited searched and sacked all around could be seen the direful presence of war the churches with their gaping entrances the doors torn off the windows smashed and the rough charcoal scribblings on the walls tall spectral-looking chimneys which stood like gaunt sentinels surveyed the ruins and guarding the place where once the sacred family hearthstone stood and around which but a few years back little children lusty manhood and doting age had clustered rich fields once bearing on their bosoms the waving grain now lay bare and sere or were fast growing up in their prime evil wilds a perfect wilderness of briars weeds and rank undergrowth and in these thickets the scouts lurked all the forests for miles on both sides of the railroad had been felled not only by troops for fuel but also to prevent guerrillas lurking near for the purpose of tearing up tracks and wrecking trains for it was this single line of railway which had furnished the whole army of the potomac with supplies only unsightly stumps marked where the lofty spreading oaks had once been the whole country as far as the eye could reach bore a peculiarly desolate and deserted look the roads as might be expected were in bad weather almost impassable being full of hollows and hog wallows upon their surface were no footprints of horses no marks made by the rut of wheels one might travel for days and meet no one except a chance scout hurrying across country as though he wanted to get out of sight as quickly as possible a vagrant crow would take his place on some dead bough and his harsh caw would be the only sound which broke the solitude every man who traveled here literally carried his life in his hands each object that moved was one of suspicion two cavalrymen meeting would talk to each other with their hands gripped tightly upon their pistol butts until satisfied that neither was in disguise a lone darky plodding along would be halted searched and subjected to the closest examination and only released on the clearest evidence for all the information which the yankees obtained of our movements in this section was gleaned from negroes 
and a prowling son of Africa was an object of intense dislike and suspicion. A dismal, lonesome region it looked to a stranger. One could see at a glance what page upon page of written matter could not convey. But if the face of the country was changed and so sadly altered, the majority of the inhabitants were not. Instead of being crushed by their dire poverty, or humiliated and cowed by the fearful destruction of their property, they were defiant and more unyielding than ever. Broken in fortune, their negroes all spirited away, every horse, and with few exceptions every head of cattle swept off by the foe, their barns burned, their storerooms plundered, they never despaired nor lost heart. There were none at home except old men, women, and children. It would require a day's journey to discover a stalwart citizen, for all true men were in the army. The women managed to get along some way when the dark times came. The old men might grumble as much as they pleased about the seemingly never-ending contest, as old men will do about anything, but a word of complaint was never heard to pass the lips of the women. They were as true and staunch in their commonwealth as the proud, devoted Carthaginian maidens who cut off their flowing tresses to make bowstrings for the soldiers. Among the lower classes the most intense hatred was felt and expressed against the invader. Many of these were unlettered people who never understood what the war was about, but they knew the Union soldiers killed or wounded their husbands, brothers, and sons. It was the man who wore the blue uniform who seized their cattle, took their chickens, and plundered their homesteads. They did not stop to think that this was the inevitable result of living in the theater of the great conflict. Just here it may be said that every army has its hordes of thieves in its train, and they will pillage at every chance, especially so as the general-in-chief, General Pope, gave them free license to do so, a license which the other commanders revoked, but not until the poison had done its work. It was a hard life which these old men, women, and children lived. They cultivated no regular crops, for they had neither the motive power nor the strength, nor would it have benefited them. A little field of corn and some vegetables was their all. A cow, perhaps, hidden in the thicket. A few hogs, maybe, in a pen concealed in a swamp, summed up their personal property, which would not have brought much revenue to the tax collector, but would prove a bonanza to a scouting party of bluecoats. The situation of some families, living along the railroad, surrounded by the enemy's bivouacs or quarters, was pitiable and distressing beyond words. Refusing to take the oath of allegiance, and thereby obtain supplies from the federal quartermaster, they suffered in a manner which bordered upon positive famine. Delicate women of the higher class, who but a few years ago lived in affluence with a train of attendants to do their bidding, would often be seen by the scouts wandering about the deserted camps of the enemy, hunting for the mess pork, the crackers, and old clothing which had been left behind. It was a common sight to witness young girls whose grace and beauty would make them remarked at the opera or ball, with benumbed fingers and chilled bodies striving to cut wood, or nearly bent double with a bundle of faggots upon their back. They performed all the menial tasks such as only strong servants would do, washed, ironed, cooked, planted their gardens, milked the cows, fed the hogs, if they had any, and did all the drudgery of the farm. Through it all they kept up their high courage, and at no time murmured at their lot. No matter what the occupation, their dignity was never lost, their high-bred refinement, that nameless charm which bespeaks the true woman, was never laid aside. 
In the country, at least, every house was open to the southern soldier, no matter who he was, nor where he came from. If there was but a crust of bread in the cupboard, it was given him with words of welcome. If his shirt was in tatters, he would find one, made from a last skirt, left in his room with a kind note. Were he barefoot, or nearly so, from some nook or cranny a pair of old boots or shoes would be found. Nimble and ready fingers would sew and patch his ragged raiment. The daily life of these women in the debatable land would be a fruitful scene for a painter, a noble theme for a poet, and a touching lesson for a Christian. Had the scout lost his weapons in some mad foray, they would arm him again from the ample stock they had picked up or bought from some Yankee deserter. Were he inclined to falter and lose hope, there were brave, encouraging words uttered, which lightened his heart and nerved his arm to great exertions. Were he sick, no brother could meet with tenderer care. For every ill they had a remedy, for every woe a charm. Is it wonderful that the soldiers, even though they had no hopes of promotion, scarcely any pay, nothing but a dim future full of suffering, and illumined by no lofty aspirations which cheer above all a soldier's path, yet animated by the exalted example of those unyielding women, should have held out and suffered and fought staunchly until the last? No, they would not have been men with men's souls and hearts had they wearied. Wrong they might be, but their love and devotion would have hallowed any cause. There were very few able-bodied men in Farquhar County. Indeed, those who skulked were insensible to every feeling of shame. What a mean spirit a man must have to stand the plain talk of old men, the jibes and scoffs of the very children, the insulting innuendos of the grandmothers, and worse than all, the contemptuous treatment of the fair ones themselves. They avoided the youth or man dressed in citizen's garb, as the eastern maidens of Baghdad did a leper, as one accursed of God. The first question a lady asked in speaking of one of the opposite sex was, Is he a good soldier? That was the highest praise, in their opinion, a man could have, and they hated a coward as they would some vile, unclean thing. Every house was a small armory. The enemy, with that improvident waste which characterized them, often left firearms and great quantities of ammunition in their deserted camps. These the citizens carefully gathered and concealed. There were hundreds of deserters and bounty jumpers making their way to the rear, who, for an old suit of citizens' clothes, would give up their arms, so the scouts and rough riders were always amply supplied. The whole country was full of partisan rangers belonging to Mosby or the Black Horse. Every thicket held them. The woodlands were full of armed men who kept well acquainted with the enemy's movements. Sharp eyes watched every detail. If a convoy started or a train got under way with a small guard, or a squad of soldiers in blue left its camp, the intelligence, conveyed by signals from some house, would reach the scouts in an inconceivably short time. The bluecoats, trains and all, would be sure to be gobbled up. If the force was too large for the small number, the scattered cavalrymen in the neighborhood would be notified, and soon a squadron of picked troopers would be ready and swoop down like a falcon. Mosby's Confederacy harbored and sheltered that great partisan leader and his command. The celerity of Mosby's movements was marvelous. One day a Yankee cavalry brigade would march through the country searching each house as it passed for him and his rangers, but not a soldier could be seen, not the glimmer of a saber, nor the flash of a carbine barrel. Everything would denote a country which was absolutely exhausted of men, 
yet in two hours afterwards three hundred scouts armed to the teeth would follow hard upon the heels of the invading force and strike a deadly blow ere morning and before the pursued could smite back mosby would be fifty miles off making a dashing raid and disappearing as suddenly as though the earth had swallowed his rough riders it was certain capture for a blue coat to show himself fifty yards outside his camp even a courier taking a dispatch from one encampment to another not a half mile distant had to have as heavy an escort as a full general for there would be half a dozen scouts lying at ease in nearly every coppice watching for just such a chance and they would often spring out and capture a party and hurry them off in full sight of their friends the scouts bivouacked generally in the pine woods and bushes which shielded them from the cold the pine needles making a soft carpet to lie upon a signal from the windows of the house let them know when it was safe to enter the signals in the daytime were the arrangements of the shutters in the night the method would be a grouping of the lights the girls always kept watch when the scouts were in the house both in sunshine and darkness and gave timely warning they were ever ready to guard a prisoner while the captors ate and slept their eyes as pitiless when on this duty as if the sexes had been changed End of chapter thirty four